Today on Sexually Woke with Dr. Susan, I'm speaking with Amanda Thebe, best-selling author of Menopocalypse, How I Learned to Thrive During Menopause and How You Can Too, fitness expert and overall amazing friend. Hi, and thanks for joining me today on this week's episode of Sexually Woke with me, Dr. Susan. And today I'm so excited to be joined by Amanda Thebe, who's a personal friend and also has a bio that's too long to read on this episode or we take up all of our time. But she's a personal trainer with over 20 years of experience in the fitness industry, also best-selling author of this amazing book that I have in my hand called Menopocalypse which I think describes the whole situation so well, How I Learned to Thrive During Menopause and How You Can Too. She's a popular guest on podcasts like this one, Online Summit. She speaks all over the place. Her health and fitness tips have been all over the world. And she lives in Houston, but she's from England. And I have a funny story before I, well, just let me say hi. Hi, Amanda. I, I want I, another funny story too. I bet we have story. so many funny stories. I know. I have a funny story about how I met Amanda, which is that she and I published our books at around the same time. So I'm on Amazon, like looking at other best-selling books in the menopause area and her book kept popping up. So I checked her out and lo and behold, she lived in Houston. And I was like, WTF, like the other best-selling author of a menopause book lives in Houston. I need to get in touch with this lady. And so we have been communicating since and have become friends. And it's just been such a lovely relationship. And I'm welcome. Thank you for joining me. I know. It's like, I love it when our these small worlds collide, don't you? It, it just, um, I, I saw my husband found you before you found me. He saw um, an article in the paper, Houstonian, I think it may have been. And he said, oh, look, there's a, there's a gynecologist in Houston who's got a book called Sexually Walk. I think you ought to buy it. <laughs> <laughs> but we don't hint. Yeah. yeah, hint, hint. But <laughs> well, um, we have so many things to talk about because Amanda and I obviously are in the same space, which is uh, talking about how to optimize the health of women, especially around this magical time called menopause. And we come at it from different backgrounds, but there's so many things we have in common. And I've got some expertise in my particular area of training. And then Amanda's got so much expertise in hers. And I've so enjoyed reading this book because uh, it's added so much understanding that I have to my, you know, what I understand about menopause, which all came from a medical background. And so we could talk about a million things, but I would really love to talk about, um, first of all, a little bit about your experience with menopause because you talk about it and it's so funny. You guys have to get this book, Menopocalypse. The title is just hilarious. And then she's just funny and a great author. And I love that. But your experience, Amanda, with menopause was kind of like mine. It was kind of apocalyptic, sounds like. And then as a result of that, working out how to use your experience to help other women. So can you tell me just kind of how that happened and what led to writing this book? And then we'll get into some of the nitty gritty stuff. So you mentioned that I've been in the health and sort of wellness industry for over 20 years. It's, it's approaching 30 years now because I always forget how old I am. And so it, it's nearly 30 years and um, I've got a very good understanding and appreciation of the human body and its physiology. And going into my 40s was in a in pretty good shape physically, emotionally, mentally, I you know, I was like nailing, nailing aging. I was like, I've got this. I know what, I know how to do this. I'm a really go- good role model for women. And that sort of, with, without being smug, of course, but just being in like a real genuine way. And, um, and then when I was about 42, I started to get unwell. And, you know, 
it lasted for about two years. I kept going to doctors, Susan, and like gyne- I, I didn't go to gynecologists. I went to neurologists, ear, nose, and throat doctors, vestibular rehabilitation specialists. You name it, I went to them. Not one of them, despite them wanting to help me, not one of them recognized that these were symptoms of perimenopause. Mm. And it was an annual checkup with my gynecologist in Toronto, where I lived at the time. And he went, oh, yeah, the, this is typical of perimenopause. Because at the time, and, and by this stage, I had depression, migraines, incontinence, you name it, I had it. And, and I was like, what? <laughs> yeah. What's, per- what's perimenopause? And, and I, I was really frustrated because I had all of the misconceptions, even about HRT at that stage about, you know, um, one, menopause happens when you're older. It simply your periods stop and then, you know, you don't have them. You might have a few hot flushes. Um, And I certainly didn't hear about it in my world, the health and wellness world. All of my like subspecialties that I'd done had been around pregnancy, pelvic floor health, you know, you name it, all of those type of things, Um, rehabilitation. And then after that, the next sort of specialties I did were like the older generation, like exercising in a chair type yeah. thing. Oh, that's <laughs> was, so much what I, and this is why I love talking to you because we like, yeah. have experienced exactly the same thing from different angles. There's this huge gap in the middle. And I noticed that as a gynecologist. So we spending all this time taking care of pregnant women and then even the postpartum rehab, like you're saying, and maybe a little bit after that. And then it goes on to taking care of geriatric women, but there wasn't much at all for this 40 to 60 time, which is so ripe with all this shit going on, like, and and nobody is talking about it. So you and I experienced that as patients or as, you know, individuals going through this ourselves, which I think is so powerful. When you told me that as a gynecologist, you were blindsided by it, I was actually horrified because I know that gynecologists don't typically get a lot of training on it. And you were like, we don't get any Amanda, like it's shocking. And then from my world, you know, it's pretty much dominated by men. The fitness world is, you know, the the leaders in the industry and their messaging is nothing changes. You just got to keep doing what you're doing. And it's so ignorant because essentially the the way to maintain um, like your fitness and your health maybe doesn't change, but there are a ton of considerations we need to um, take into place. And, and they're so ignorant to them. And then in addition to that, you know, I suppose I'm considered like an old hag in the fitness industry, like a 50 year old, <laughs> like, like showing people to be fit. That's like a unicorn, right? Like mm. everyone else is 20 and in the booty shorts. And so I was like, you know, screw this. I'm going to try and dig deep into the research. There's a couple of scientists out there that are female physiologists, like, and and they're looking at performance, probably more your world, like endurance sports, but there's some research there. So I started looking into it and it was, it's quite fascinating really. And so I I think I, I feel like I have a good understanding about what happens to the body from a physiological level, what you can do to support it how it might help some of your symptoms and how it will help bulletproof you as you get older. Cause like we're in this for the long run, aren't we? Yeah. Oh, and it's so true that all of the fitness gurus that we see on TV and probably most of our trainers and women at the gym, men and women at the gym that we look to for health are not in our age group. And they're not that they well, they will be at one point or another reach our age, but they're not focused on the same things that we are. So I think being a role model for women in our 50s or 40 to 60 age group is so important. And so, 
you know, I've talked on this podcast a lot about hormone replacement, some of the other medical things, but I'm really interested in what you've learned in your field. And one of the things you and I have talked about, which sounds very obvious, but we need a lot of education about it, is how nutrition plays a part in this whole menopausal spectrum. And what can we do to help with that? And this is a lot of questions, but everybody knows, like the, I don't know there's probably five top complaints, but one of them for sure is this weight gain thing that happens. And one of the funniest chapters is called I'm So Bloody Fat, which is just what we think. And I'll quote this one hilarious thing. Uh, Amanda said, when I was in perimenopause with my yo-yoing hormones, my boobs jumped from two hanging pieces of tissue <laughs> resembling eggs in a pair of stockings. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's like it makes you laugh to read. To these huge masses of flesh that reminded me of cow udders. I just, it's just so funny because we've been through it, right? Like the, this time of estrogen dominance when our boobs are huge and just everything's changing and we look in the mirror and like, what the hell happened? And even Amanda, who's like this fitness guru with, you know, muscles and everything popping out. She's saying this happened to her. So yes, you're not alone, number one, if you're feeling this. And and what can we do? What can we do about this from an exercise and nutrition point of view? And Yeah. So, I mean, it was a bit of a shock for me. Um, I... I do talk about the weight gain and menopause and I try and talk it in a really about it in a really respectful way because um, I'm quite aware that a lot of women, um, it really impacts their self-worth and their self-esteem. And so it's really important for me to talk about weight gain as something that we shouldn't tie to our self-worth, which is very difficult to do as women because we, you know, society throws this perception on us that we're supposed to look a certain way and thinness equals being healthy, et cetera. Right. Mm -hmm. So we, we fight the notion that weight gain is bad. And, but then on the flip side of that, we know statistically, uh, it's not going, it's not very good for us on the outlook. We, we will put weight on. Most women will put weight on about 70% worldwide. The, the rate is higher in the US. Average weight gain about 10 pounds. And so that can be quite significant for some people, like somebody like you who's quite small, Susan, that would be a significant like, weight gain. And um, as, as, as well as sort of like not tying ourselves worth to it and being too miserable over it, we also can be like, yeah, but you know what? I don't want this on me. I I'd feel better if I lost it. What's the most intelligent way I can do this? And so to me, it's all about the attitude we take when we we go into the weight loss um, game. Yeah, um, what no, we- just, yeah, thank you. And I, yeah. I hate to interrupt, but that just resonates no, no, so no, much do because, um, yeah, I don't want to weigh what I weighed in high school. That's not going to happen. And I don't want to look like I'm 20. I, I think that's important. So just really being, I love the idea of being respectful of the fact that we are getting older. So none of us are talking about anti-aging. And there's a beautiful quote you have in your book about that too. Like we're, we're not talking about anti-aging. I like the idea of optimal aging or gracefully aging, but we can certainly still maintain the healthiest, most optimal body that we can. And that might involve doing some things that reduce weight gain. And since this is the Sexually Woke podcast, one of the most important things that plays into our libido is our sense of our self, our self-esteem. And that is affected by our weight, not not just a weight on the scale, but the other thing that you know that we see is that uh, we lose muscle and gain fat. So a lot of it's just altering our body composition. Not I don't care well, about the weight. It's it's our 
you know, overall feeling of strength, right? And just so one of the things that I sort of like know that happens, and many women realize is they come become these ultimate shape shifters. You know, I, I talk about the menopause flesh blanket that sort of seems mm. to drape over us, and that's what it felt like to me. And um, but for someone who's never put weight on on her tummy, I noticed it for me, and m- many women do notice that. And that's one of the phys- physiological changes we see: fat deposits shift more from like the bone and leg area which we need for pregnancy you know like those nice juicy thighs and everything and buttocks for pregnancy and carrying children and then it shifts more to like an androgen style type body um, and so women will tend to find that when they do put weight on it goes more to their belly and that's a big shock for them and they're like wow that never happened before yeah no shit Sherlock like mm. all of this is introduced all of this is interjected with your, your your decline in estrogen and then in addition to that you know um, estrogen will then try and continually try and find ways to produce itself right and so we know that some of the adipose tissue some of our um, fat tries to produce some estrogen and so you know the theory is that a little bit of fat isn't bad for us because it's metabolically active not as metabolically active as muscle but it is useful it doesn't just sit there doing nothing so we shouldn't be hating on it (laughs) as much as we are But then in addition to that, you know, women are going through these shifts. We know that from the age of 30 onwards, we see a decline of about 3% every year in our ability to maintain lean muscle. Um, And it's really hard to describe what that is to women. But I don't mean you have to be like a bodybuilder woman, but everybody has muscle. Whether you can see it or not, you have muscle, right? And so, but when we start to lose that, typically through aging and being sedentary which is what we're doing a lot more (laughs) during the pandemic right Mm -hmm. Um, and then it's accelerated somewhat through perimenopause we see that women really sort of struggle to maintain and build lean muscle and why that's important why it's important for women to maintain lean muscle mass is because there's so many benefits to having it on your body like the impacts of you maintaining and building lean muscle as you get older we'll go through all the benefits in a minute are amazing and by the end of this everybody's going to be doing weights I know you do them I was with you the other day doing them on the bike but yeah but um, you know I didn't want to in, uh, until recently and that's interesting because a lot of us throughout my life I didn't have to like I was able to maintain muscle without doing any strength training and so I was doing all this cardio and things like that because was what I enjoyed. And a lot of my patients do that too. They're like, well, I'm walking, I'm jogging and that's wonderful. And please continue doing that. But, um, I think Amanda knows more about this than I do, but it's so important around this age that we, if we haven't done so already adding strength training, because that muscle loss has got so many, uh, deleterious effects that, that Amanda will help explain. One of them is it decreases our basal metabolic rate. Um, you know, so then we get fatter and then it's this cycle. And so this, I'm so bloody fat idea. Let's talk about, let's talk about that some more. Like what can we do and how, how, how can you advise us to be our best selves? Well, so, um, so there's sort of like two trains of thought, like, and so one is about nutrition and one is about exercise and you'll never lose weight exercise. And that's not the purpose of it. The purpose of exercising is for your health. Right. And I think women need to separate those things. We need to lose the idea that we eat less and work out more. It's such a ingrained message that we've heard from the fitness industry. It's quite harmful through perimenopause when you know, cause you see women coming into your clinic that our stress buckets are full. It's like literally sloshing over. And so you've got these women that are stressed out, it's probably symptomatic, 
either depression or anxiety is peaking and then we start eating less and so our bodies are like why would you do that to me all right and then I'm going to exercise more 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 um and and the body will like just get so overstressed it will be detrimental to your like progress through perimenopause and so a couple of things that are worth noting is first of all Something that changes through perimenopause is called muscle protein synthesis. And this is the ability for you to break down the protein you eat in your food um, to then go through the system of breaking down and building back up and either maintaining muscle that you already have or building new muscle. Um, and because that's impacted, perimenopausal women need to eat more protein. And also as you age, you need to eat more protein. Most women under eat protein. Um, and the, the latest studies are showing that women need to have about one, one, key, one gram of protein for every um, pound of lean mass. And that's really hard to know what your lean mass is. I weigh 130 pounds. My lean mass is 100 so I eat 100 grams of protein a day. But honestly, if you're listening to this and you're a woman and you don't eat enough protein, aiming to eat about 100 grams of protein a day will be so beneficial to you. Um, not just in the idea of doing like strength training and building muscle and aiding that process, but also because protein is like the, the queen of the macronutrients. It keeps, it's our building blocks. It's the most important macronutrient we have in our, that we can eat. And um, it can, women who like tend to like snack and nibble like little bunnies and then get that sugar dip at three o'clock in the afternoon, it can, a lot of that can be negated by eating protein every meal. It does a great job of um, level, leveling out your blood sugar. Oh, that's so them. true. And I've tried this yeah. myself and I, I promise you, I don't do it all the time, but at times when I've really focused on that, it makes so much difference. I don't yeah. feel hungry. Your energy um, levels probably. Yeah, your energy levels better. Um, you don't wake, you know, I would eat dinner and then at 1030 you want to go downstairs and eat a bag of chips, like take some of that away. And yeah. then also, you know, if you don't know your lean mass, um, if you can find someone and we can do it in our office to do a body composition, like stand on a real body comp machine and figure out how much fat and muscle you have. And in, in my office, I always say the first time you do that, it usually makes you cry because all of us, including me, have a higher fat percentage than we thought we did or wished we had, but knowing where you're starting from is so important because we can't move forward without knowing where we are. And seeing that change is also so exciting that when you start doing the program that Amanda's talking about, you can see your uh, lean mass go up and your body fat go down and yeah. it all just starts becoming fun. And things like the in-body is a biopedance, um, a biometric impedance. It basically looks at fluid in your body. And so it should, you, should be used as a baseline because if you do it first thing in the morning when you've woke up, you haven't had your coffee and you've had a pee, your fat percentage is going to be lower purely because it looks at the water level in your body than if you do it at four o'clock in the afternoon. But if you're always going to get it done, always try and get it done same about time. the same time. Yeah. And, then, and then it's a baseline and it's data and it doesn't, it doesn't define you. It's all of those things we've already talk, talked about but it really is a good just uh, a good base for you to say okay so maybe I do and, and the body fat percentage might be out by one or two percent and that's okay but it does give you an indication of where you are on the scale and um, on the scale of health I should say not the, the physical weight um, and so as far as like how do, how do we lose weight right it's really difficult like to for women to to see quick shifts in weight loss through perimenopause because you've got all of these obstacles like making it harder for you. 
Now, the, the nutrition science model is based around thermogenics and thermogenics are just based on like how many calories you use to sleep, for your, to, to digest food, to exercise and to, in all of those different things. Um, and then in order for you to lose weight, you need to reduce the amount of calories that you're eating compared to what you're using. And that sounds pretty simple as far as like how to do it, like, like what you need to do, but then the how to do it is the hard mm, bit, right? Yeah. Because in addition to probably being so symptomatic, you can't be bothered to eat well and you're not exercising enough. Maybe you're also bloated and have water retention. Your hunger hormones also get out of whack. It's a little bit um, unclear exactly what happens, but ghrelin and leptin are two hormones in our body that impact the way we recognize that we're hungry and it tells us when we're satiated. And so when those aren't working properly as well, perimenopausal women are like I'm always hungry I can't stop eating and I'm like yeah well we know that that's true as well and so how I suggest that women do this is a couple of things is looking at one behavioral changes are you eating because you're hungry are you eating just because you're bored are you walking by the kitchen like just try and recognize what true hunger feels like and eat because it's the right time to eat not just because it's something to do, right? Mm-hmm. That's like those type of behavioral changes, like eat until you're satisfied. Don't eat until your button's going to pop off, right? And <laughs> slow down the <laughs> slow down the eating process because all of these things send these neurotransmitters back to the brain and sort of tell the brain that you're hungry and then you can stop eating it. But it they're all like these small behavioral things you can do to just like recognize behaviors around eating. Because one of the problems with perimenopause is the um, amount of disordered eating behaviors that a lot of women have. We, we come from a restrictive model where we're like, well, I need to lose weight. So I'm going to stop this, stop this and stop this. And I'm no, no, no. Let's just look at this a different way. Why don't we think of the things we can add? Okay, what we can add is we're going to add in protein at every meal. We're going to look at complex carbohydrates. They're really important for you. Your body needs them for good hormonal health, for your brain health, for everything, for your energy levels. Let's make sure you're eating tons of veggies and you're getting fruit in and all of those great whole grains, right? I call those the high value carbs. Usually it's easy to get enough fat in. That's not something I focus on too much because it's in our avocado and our olive oil and our meat and our fish. And then keep the fun carbs a little bit lower than usual because we know that um, we perimenopausal women are likely to be fructose sensitive. And that doesn't mean you don't have to eat. You can't eat things with those added sugars like your bars of chocolate. You just probably don't want to have like five bars a night. Maybe you just have them for those like those treats, those yeah. special, yeah. It, you know, and that's such great information and advice because I think um, all of us in our age group did grow up with this restrictive idea. I mean, I did for sure. I can, I think Me most too, of my patients Susan. did. Where we were, um, you know, the popular body shape when we were teenagers was a really skinny, twiggy kind of a look. And there was so many eating disorders and so much pathology around food and calorie counting and all this stuff. And we've grown up with that. And, our, you know, our teenage children still have um, body image issues and their own issues. But it's interesting to me that the ideal, and I'm using quotation marks, body shape has changed so much now, like having some roundness and some fat and a big bottom and that is fashionable. So all of this is fashion, but I think those of us in our age group remember so many years of starving and uh, 
you can't eat this and you can't eat that. But the idea that you can sort of eat anything, but with, I love the idea of adding, like it's such a more positive way of um, approaching food. What can we add um, and what can we moderate? And um, talking about mindful eating, which is something as a, a practice that I just have been working on because I grew up in a family with five kids and you had to eat really fast or you weren't going to get anything. And then being an OBGYN resident, you had two minutes to eat your food and you were usually on your feet and walking at the same time. It wasn't really a um, practice to sit and enjoy eating slowly and just the things that we all know, but most of us don't do like, you know, chewing and really enjoying and sort of really making love to every bite of that wonderful food and then swallowing it before you pick up the fork. And I just learned this, so I'm not speaking as an expert. I used to shovel down food so fast because I was off to do something else, but making mealtimes an event. And I actually eat less and I enjoy it more. So behavioral changes have been shown to be one of the best long-term strategies for weight loss to come off and stay off right? The, we know that because um, it doesn't matter what diet you go on, you'll lose weight because diets work. We know that. But sustaining them long-term is the hard problem because when you finished your 21-day fix or you've done enough keto that you're just desperate to eat a piece of bread, mm-hmm. right? You, you, you've got no fail safe to go back on. But by adding positive actions instead and actually learned, learning to nourish the body and enjoy food and appreciate food, it just takes away all of the stress and strain that you we've put on ourselves in in the past and but it also changes on a cellular level we know we can change the way the brain thinks we know that we've seen we see on mri scans from mindfulness like practice and the same can be done for behavioral changes it changes the amygdala it changes the way you can approach things and um, and it's actually how i i only put 10 pounds on but I lost that 10 pound by one focusing on protein. That was, I just made sure I had that. And then just my training is all in behavioral change. So I just had to go back and it takes ages. It's practice. It doesn't come easy. You'll slip up. Everybody does. But then it starts to become like when you have to start flossing, you know, when you go to the dentist and he goes, you haven't been flossing and you go, right, I'm going to do it. And then you go home and you do it for two or three weeks. And it's that type of thing. You've just got to do it until it's second nature and 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 ultimately when you adopt these type of behaviors you will probably eat less because you're only eating until you're satisfied you're enjoying your food and you're nourishing your body right yeah and I love that it it is such a and it ties in with everything you and I have talked about and what we both write about which is that midlife and beyond doesn't have to be so dreadful and when we're talking about food the idea of um, calorie restriction and cutting out these things just seem so, such a loss. And so it has a lot of negative feelings around it for me, but approaching it from a different point of view where my relationship with food now, personally, I can tell you is so much more joyful than it used to be because I actually can sit down and enjoy food and appreciate how it's nourishing my body rather than just stuffing it in my face and running onto the next thing, which doesn't feel like a loss, actually. That feels like a gain. And at the same time, uh, it's helping my body. I'm not gaining weight and all of those things. But so I just encourage you to like listen to what Amanda's saying in that regard. Like this idea of changing the way we eat doesn't have to be um, a, a negative. I mean, it's really a positive. I'm very optimistic about that idea because it, it does add more joy to my day. I like going to the grocery store more now and looking for fabulous, healthy things that are colorful and beautiful and 
bringing those into our meals. And Amanda and I had lunch the other day and we had this beautiful bowl and it was so it was a and, bowl of rainbow. I was, yeah, it was so, so good. <laughs> it was so good and it looked so pretty. And we, we took an hour to eat it and, and we were talking with it. And it's just so, just that's what eating can be like. And actually, growing up for me, eating was not like that at all. And so I'm just saying it's not, it's not all bad. In fact, it's not any bad, really. This is all just. It's freeing. It's freeing. a freeing yeah, way. Yeah. 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 That's how I think about it. And I think that um, giving yourself permission to believe that that can be a possibility. Is so it's just a joy. And I've worked with so many women when it comes to um, their approach to food. And we also now know now that their eating disorders peak in women at perimenopause, similar to they do in puberty, there's a hormonal connection there. Mm, and so really we, the way we talk about food is so important. And for anyone who follows me on Instagram, I went on some crazy rants this week. I'm such a gobshite. I mean, I have an opinion about everything and Susan knows this. I do try and be respectful though. I'm not somebody that's rude and I do like to just be honest and maybe the voice of reason. Um, and there, and you know, there's somebody out with a new book and it's all about a detox and all about like, restricting and all of these rules around food and cleansing your liver and I just want to cry I want to like it's just wrong it's based on pseudoscience it's not necessary and that's my question to women like why are you doing it it's not necessary why are you making it harder for yourself when we know the simple stuff works it's like an exercise we know the simple stuff works but people want us to do bloody burpees off a bosu ball and a backflip and, <laughs> and I'm just like just stop <laughs> that that's so funny and so true I think I don't know why why do we do that I do those things I'm trying to think why I guess like there's some idea that the more dramatic we can be about it the better our results will be or something but it doesn't have to be that hard you're right like this this whole process of getting older um doesn't have to be so tragic and so difficult and so hard. And I think if we can, I talk about limiting beliefs a lot in my coaching work, and there's so many limiting beliefs I think we have around food, like mine were, that I had to not eat this and not eat that. And if I just ate really fast and got it over with and didn't, I was scared to go to the grocery store for a long time because there's just too much food and it would be overwhelming and just a lot of fear around even cooking, like that I'd eat too much and just so much energy wasted on thinking negative thoughts about food and just the joy I have now having lightened up around that a little bit. And just, I love the way Amanda just approaches everything with a little bit of humor. We can <laughs> lighten up around that a little bit. It does not have to be so hard that this can be, and it is, like it has, it's just this limitless possibility of ways that we can develop healthier relationships with whatever it is we're talking about, sexuality, food, our body. Um, so what do you eat? What, what do you eat? And okay. Yeah. I mean, I can tell you, but I, I just wanted to add to that as well as I believe a lot of women are doing what you said and you said that you don't do, and you don't want to be what you were in your twenties. But I think there's a lot of women out there that, you know, will say, Oh, but I remember when I could wear a size two in my jeans and I remember this and I remember that. And, and I think that it's, I, I just want women to move away from like living in the past and become more present. And we know being present, especially with your coaching work is so important just mm -hmm. for like living in the moment. And, um, and also maybe considering that they may not need to lose weight, 
there may be a new set point in their work that's perfectly acceptable and that maybe something else is driving the desire to lose weight. It might be societal pressures. I mean, I personally am pretty outspoken about the unbalanced um, view that the media has of 50-year-old women. You know, mm. when they put somebody like J-Lo and Jennifer Anderson up as the, the absolute way a 50-year-old woman, woman should look like, that's pretty unobtainable for most women but we're also not in a bloody rocking chair doing our knitting well actually I am but I mean you know when <laughs> you just know by choice am. yeah she likes just to crochet choice. and knit yeah um, but but my point is that you know like I think that um be- believing what you want not what somebody else is telling you right um and then as far as I'm concerned like I do I try and eat when I'm hungry I don't try and eat just because it's meal times um and but but it inevitably ends up being around meal times because when you eat till you're satisfied you're, you're usually satisfied for about three to four hours that's what the studies show and so if you take that into account um if you if you eat at a regular time at like eight or nine o'clock then you would have a lunch and then a snack and then an evening meal and that would be about three or four hours in between some people wake up and they're not hungry I actually have changed over the last couple of years and I wake up and I'm never hungry and don't eat till 10 o'clock um have to have my coffee but a typically a typical meal for breakfast would be greek yogurt and i mix a unpowered unflavored whey powder into it because i want to try and get that extra protein in and it actually just makes it taste super creamy really nice with a bit of honey and i put all seeds and berries in it's really lovely and then for lunch either like a sandwich or salad with some loads of veggies lean protein typically fish it's usually salmon or um tuna <laughs> I'm a creature of habit and then I actually love cooking I find cooking to be one of the most relaxing things to do my mom was a chef so I think that might be helpful and I don't want to not eat the food I enjoy and I don't think anyone should and so what I'll do is I'll maybe compose my plate so it looks different to how it would in the past so I always make sure that there's lean protein there and then maybe half the plates full of vegetables and then there's a big dollop of grains in it I don't mind white rice brown rice of farro any of those grains maybe a few potatoes if I want but the but I try and eat protein to vegetables first um and then for my snack um I don't know maybe um I do like a particular protein bar that I buy otherwise I'll just like snack on like a bit of cheese or ham and a bit of fruit maybe a digestive biscuit. And the thing is like, I still want to have things like my British biscuits that I can dunk in my tea. And I still want to have a bit of chocolate mm. at night, night. And I refuse to give those up. And you can, it's just be mindful of what you're eating and just don't shovel it down without conscious thought. Yeah. And that's such a, that's such an important idea. And I, I talked about that just now, but I just want to reiterate that eating, and this is so new for me, so I'm so excited to have just realized this in the last few years, that eating can be an experience that's got color and flavor and um, the way you position things on the plate, like you said, and um, not giving up anything. And it reminds me of a, a, this would be so inappropriate now, I don't think she could do it, but Oprah had a show probably, I don't know, 20 years ago when she was full in her trying to lose weight situation. And I think the name of the show was Why French Women are skinny, something like that. Yeah. And Amanda's making smoking s- sounds because yes, they smoke a lot, but that was that. But this was in the time when we were all trying to be so skinny, but I thought it was so fascinating. And there was a little bit of wisdom in amongst the nonsense. Um, 
short version is they ate whatever they wanted. They interviewed these Persian women who were you know, twiggy thin. They didn't have any muscle, by the way, and they weren't over 40. But they ate whatever they wanted. They just ate a very small amount. And that's such obvious uh, wisdom. But we can bring some of that into our older years and don't give stuff up. Yes, if you love your digestive biscuits and you love your ice cream, you can have a little bit. And I developed a, a strategy. I love my favorite thing in the world is haagen Dolce de Leche ice cream. Mm. I don't know if you guys have ever tried that. But I used to be scared to buy it because I would eat the whole pint. So now I have a system where I take a teaspoon and I go in the freezer and I take the lid off and I take the teaspoon of ice cream, put the lid back on, close the freezer and then walk away. And then I just savor this one teaspoon for quite some time. And it's fulfilling and I don't want any more. And then I'm good. So I don't have to give it up and I feel completely satisfied because I make it last about five minutes. So I think we can do things like that and really enjoy our food. And, and one of the one of the things you sort of said there is like building up a really great habit, a habit that is sustainable. It doesn't involve deprivation and it gives you the, like the joy the ice cream gives you, right? Yeah. And I didn't get much joy sitting down, eating the whole pint, watching TV, by the way, because I wasn't paying attention. But eating my one teaspoonful is incredibly joyful. So I, it's more joyful. And so I didn't lose anything. I just want to keep saying that over and over again, that this is optimistic. Like we don't have to feel like we're depriving ourselves or that we're losing anything. It's just so scary. I'm going on another diet and Amanda's going to put me on another diet. And blah. No, it's it's about, to me, what I'm hearing you saying and what I read in this book, for those of you who didn't hear the beginning, menopocalypse, which is so funny because it is like that. But um, it's, also, so, the- it's also so optimistic. Just that's It's optimistic. But the whole point of it is I wanted to like, it, I had a horrible time and I wanted to like lay things out there, but like you do, it's really important to like have people reflect on your story. But I think it's a really amazing time and um, for growth and it's it can be a positive time. And it's hard to believe that when you're in the midst of all of these terrible symptoms, but when you get knowledge and you have choice and then you are able to one, find a great doctor to help you get through the worst of it. Two, understand that you're in this for the long term. So every single action that you take today, taking the small bites of ice cream, prioritizing protein, getting in lots of movement every day, that did, I didn't say exercise, I mean, get out of your chair and just walking around, like actually taking care of your health will last you for like all into old age. And so when you do sort of like these quick fix fads and these hardcore diets, they've got a shelf life. It's really small. And, and my goal of the book is that these are actions you can start now and then they'll just become second nature and it will just mean that you know as we get older it we we're doing the right things we make better choices yeah and so this is about how we feel right now so so when we're amanda and i both went through some really tough times as far as how we felt you know in the present moment at that time like really awful symptoms and so we did these things and um we can do things with hormones, diet, exercise, uh, meditation, all the things that we've been talking about. And that's wonderful. So we feel better now. But also this idea that we're going to live to be maybe 100 years old. So these changes we're implementing are setting ourselves up to be much healthier elderly people, which I think is so important. And um, going back to, you know, of course, we want to be healthy older people. One of the things I think about with that is that, you know, we have children and I don't want them to 
it's really not selfish. In other words, like the, the, you know, you're being selfless if you're taking care of yourself because you can provide better, you're more present for others. You're not going to be a burden to others as you get older. So I've really started thinking about that differently as far as the amount of work I put into taking care of myself as a very selfless activity. You know, and I call it, I call it the we to me phenomena. And it's mm. the idea that you don't always put everybody first. You know, you actually put your, you know, you put your own mask on first. You take care of yourself first. And that's something that women don't typically do because, you know, we're givers, we, we're carers and we want to look after our family and all that can still happen. But what, what I'm saying is that when you start putting yourself first, um, you sort of have the stronger foundation, a better foundation. And then the ripple of effect of that is that everybody else benefits because I know I've got examples of me where I haven't put myself first I've been like a crazy banshee running around with my like head spinning and everybody's scared crackless of me right and and, and it's not good for anyone but just taking a few minutes like I have self-preservation you know having a coffee doing some like deep breathing a little bit of meditation or going for a walk they're like really grounding activities that sort of can set you up for the day yeah, and you're right. It does help everybody because uh, we, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm a witch or anything, but we do emit a certain energy that affects other people. And the the healthy we are in our own energy, the more benefit we can provide to others. The other thing I want to say is that many of us in our age group have teenagers or or young people who are very much looking to us as examples of what to do. So if we're shoveling food in our face and eating a bag of chips watching Netflix and all of the things that I've done many times myself, and some of you might do them too, and our kids are watching that, I'm, I'm really starting to be very aware of what I'm teaching my, I have three teenagers, two of them are girls, I, I don't know, that's sexist, but I worry more about them, I guess, but boys too have a lot of body image issues. Like this is such a, it's such a selfless thing we can do if we could model to them eating in a healthy way and uh, being mindful around food and exercise. And the word, and the words we say as well. I agree with that. Like, so for example, the other day, I, um, after we had had breakfast, I went and bought some croissant for breakfast for, for the family the next day. And my husband had gone swimming and he came in and he went, Oh, I can't wait to eat this croissant because I've really earned it. I did a 4,000 meter swim and this is like, it's really naughty, but I'm going to do it. And I like, and me being the person I am went, there's no moral, there's no morality around food. (laughs) Food isn't good or bad. And then he started winding me up and he went, I should have really done 6,000 meters to eat this croissant. But my point is that those type of words for all that he is joking about them actually matter. When we start saying, don't eat that because it's bad, then that you've put a moral judgment on food. And then the chances are the kids are going to feel guilty eating it. And then you're, you're starting down the road of eating disorders. Like we just have to just talk about food as a fuel that we need to survive we literally can't do without it right but there's ways to make better choices if we're going to watch netflix with a bag of chips we can say should we have a little bowl of crisps or crisps i call them between mm. us you know we don't have to sit and stuff the whole bag you know and and this and, and when it comes down to these really restrictive diets with young teenage teenage girls we know girls are more likely to have eating disorders but we know boys get them too as mm-hmm. teenagers 
if they see us like nibbling on a piece of lettuce because we've got to fit in our bikini in six weeks, what type of message does that give yeah. them? Right? Yeah, it's shocking. I've done that, and I we have, we've all done yeah, it. I know. By the and, way, yeah. yeah, we have, and we we do, and we just want to, and, and it's okay. So be be aware of it, and um, I think it's just the awareness of it that's so important. Yeah, and, yeah. I mean, I'm learning on the job, honestly. Susan is like, I feel like we're always learning. Oh with no, children. We, yeah, we didn't. They didn't come with a good handbook, and if if they had come with a handbook, we would be changing it all the time. But yeah, again, just this this is these type of changes that we're suggesting are not selfish. And I was taught spending time on thinking about yourself, even going to the gym and spending time on cooking a lovely meal. And all of these things were selfish because I should be spending all my time on something else, like taking care of other people, but just maybe take that message in. It's not selfish. It allows us to take so much better care of the people around us and set better examples for the young ones who look up to us. So you were talking about, I'm going to ask you this question again. Um, Amanda uses this um, acronym NEAT, N-E-A-T. And you talked yeah. about that a little bit, but it just sounds cool. Tell it's us about sound, NEAT. It, it sounds cool. So when we talk about our metabolism, it's actually made up of something called T-D-E-E, which is your total daily energy expenditure, right? You don't need to know that, but basically the, the reason we have calories is because it we need it sort of how many calories we use to survive okay and that's why when you see these 1200,000 like 1200 I couldn't even say 1200,000 that's a lot of calories I know yeah yeah um calorie diets and we know that um that's basically what our body um uses at rest at night so when you're asleep at night your body uses tons of calories to like just like reset rejuvenate to get the organs going the muscles the brain all of those things right anything outside of that are like extra calories we use calories um to process the food that you eat you know that uses calories and we use calories when we exercise but it's actually a lot less than most people think you know it's not a huge amount um but where people can make a massive impact is something called neat and neat is the non-exercise activity thermogenesis and all that means is the first bit non-exercise it's the best all the movement you do outside of the workout you do and so when I say I'd love everybody to move every day, I'm talking about NEAT. And NEAT can be anything from going out for an easy bike ride or it can be um, walking to Starbucks or walking around the house and doing the housework, doing the gardening. It's movement, right? And we've become a sedentary nation and it's the sort of thing that's like killing us, right? It, mm-hmm. it, it, it really impacts our health markers. And if you think about something like walking, you know, you can go for an hour's walk and use up to something like 350 calories on an hour's walk. It's a, it's a significant amount, right? But not just the, the calories burnt. What it does is it, it dampens down the impact of some of those health issues that are likely to sort of like get us when we're older, right? Things like hypertension, cardiovascular disease, um, diabetes, obesity, you know, you name it, osteoporosis, Alzheimer's, all of those things like that, they've shown that walking out of, it's probably the most studied exercise out there. It, it, you do that, your health markers on every level will improve. Um, and so it's easy. Everyone can do it. It's free. Um, and so 
I, I have women like that have talked to me and you must as well, Susan, that they're exhausted, they're depressed, they don't want to exercise, they can barely like make a cup of tea, never mind think about evening dinner. And I've been there, you've been there, and it's not a nice place to be. But even on those days when I was like that, I would still get up and even just walk around the garden like mm-hmm. an old lady smelling the flowers, like yeah. whatever, what, whatever. We, we have so much judgment or some of us do around the word exercise or workout. Like, oh, okay, you have to exercise. You've got to go to the gym. And, um, you know, Amanda and I grew up liking that. So we're in a small group that doesn't find that difficult. But for many, many women, that sounds terrifying. And so they won't do it. But I love this idea of non-exercise activity. Like, yes, activity that you don't have to call it exercise. It's walking the dog or smelling the flowers or just walking around the room. So and move and that movement movement. on Mm -hmm. a cellular level is just so, so good for you. And even just for your mental health, You've got, you've got depression and anxiety and you get those endorphins moving, especially if you go outside. And Houston is pretty accessible all year round, right? Even last week, I went out for a walk in the, in the sub-zero temperatures. Yeah, and then uh, we're getting to the end of Amanda's time because she's got kids yeah. to pick up. But yeah, there's a beautiful types of movement that are not exercise, like dancing and, yes. and just free movement and just rotating your hips and just all these lovely things. And uh, I think we're going to have to have Amanda come back and talk some more um, because I've got lots of other things I want to ask her about. But um, Amanda, I want to thank you so much for spending this time with us. You have so much wisdom and your enormous almost 30-year history in this industry. <laughs> and um, for those of you who haven't got it already, if you go on Amazon, uh, Menopocalypse, which uh, is spelt just like it sounds, is a fabulous book that goes through all of this stuff and just give you just more optimism and more uh, tools in your toolbox of how to deal with this time that we can experience as being pretty difficult. And I just want to say, like, even from a totally different background, it so much fits in with what I talk about. And thank you for sharing. I'm so glad we got to meet. And I'd love to have you come back on the show again. And um, everybody check her out and we'll put some information in the little bits and pieces below about how to find all this stuff because she has a lots of other fun things she does too where you can connect uh, through Zoom and other ways we can find you, right? Yeah, absolutely. But um, thank you very much um, for having me on. And, and I just love the fact now we're building this like little army of men or warriors that are like determined to change the narrative and, and the message out there. And there's people out there that are telling us that we're, we're broken and we need to be fixed and we need to take this sup- supplement and do this diet. And I just want to um, really tell women to take a step back, just to think about what they really want in their life, what they really need, um, and just follow people with like really sane, simple advice like you, right? Like just Go and find your people. Yeah, that's great advice. Where can we find you really fast? What's the, if people want to reach you, website, things like that? Well, why don't you just give them my um, Instagram account, amanda.theeb. Amanda.theeb, T-H-E-B-E. Wonderful. And there'll be some more information below and get this book, Menopocalypse, How I Learned to Thrive During Menopause and How You Can Too. And Amanda's a real person, so she has to go pick kids up like we all do. (laughs) Yep, I've got a life, yeah. (laughs) She has a life. It's so good to see you. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. That was awesome. Bye.